From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. And I'm Tracy McRae. Are you thinking about jumping on the diet bandwagon in an effort to lose weight? There are a lot of popular options out there. The keto diet, the Mediterranean diet, just to name a few. Today on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss diets and ways to make healthy lifestyle choices with a Mayo Clinic expert. Some emerging data, but it's fairly short-term data that people can lose weight on a ketogenic mm-hmm. diet over the course of a few weeks into months. However, after six months, these diets are very difficult to sustain. Also on the program, did you know vasectomy rates rise in March? We'll find out why. And deaths from cancer in the U.S. continue a 25-year decline. That's this week's program. Up next. According to Dr. Google, the most searched question of 2018 was, what is the keto diet? Hmm. Keto, short for ketogenic, is a high-fat, very low-carbohydrate diet. The idea is that getting most of your calories from fat forces your body to use different energy pathways. Instead of carbs for energy, the body burns fat, entering a state called ketosis. Well, here to discuss the benefits and the drawbacks of the keto diet is Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zaradsky. Welcome back to the program, Kate. It's nice to see you again. Good to be here. Thank you. What is this thing? Yeah. What is it? It's the most Googled question, so it must be something. Right. And, and I'll have to say from my background, and, and I've, I've worked with Mayo Clinic for 19 years. And when I started um, and was working more so in pediatrics, mm-hmm. this was a diet that we used in the hospital um, and then sent children home um, on this diet so it, it would help control their seizures. And that's really how I was introduced to and knew of the ketogenic diet. And Me so, too. Yeah. So when people started talking about, oh, I'm on the keto diet and I'm doing the keto diet, I I was like, really? I asked <laughs> several people if they had seizure disorder history. I said, no. Right. And, and I thought... And in, in, in my experience, you know, I would spend an entire day doing calculations of how much fat, how much carbohydrate, even how much protein. And the ketogenic diet, as it's used to control seizures, is really done in very strict ratios. And you're very cautious about weighing and measuring and being very precise with the uh, amount and the types of foods to make sure that you have the response you want to help that child. So a ketogenic diet, you're saying, is maybe different than what people consider a keto diet? Yes. So I think what what we're seeing today, um, where when people are describing to me, well, I'm doing the keto diet, I'll often ask, like, well, how are you doing Mm -hmm. it? And oftentimes in their description, they're eating fat and protein in large quantities and eating very few carbohydrate-rich okay. foods. And so, in in my opinion, that sounds more like a modified Atkins-type okay. diet where you're, you're allowing yourself ample quantities of both protein and fat and just limiting it to carbohydrates. And I know there are people who are talking to more people and reading more about it. There are people who are looking at this in true uh, carbohydrate restriction, but also... Um, maybe some protein restriction, but I think that's maybe a difference that we're maybe seeing across the board that I'd, I'm not sure people 
fully understand what that means. People are using this for weight loss, right? Right. And I think one thing to understand is there's differing degrees of being in ketosis. And so oftentimes that's measured by people measuring their urine ketones. And so people will get, you know, test strips and, and test their ketones. And it may say that it's they're in ketosis, but probably the degree of ketosis is probably a variable um, to, to be taken into account there. And I think maybe that's, you know, the difference we see. Sometimes I get a little nervous. I think, well, gosh, we don't really actually want you in ketosis. But can you tell us about that? <laughs> right. And I think and I think this is something that is the unknown mm-hmm. with when, when people are saying, well, I'm going to put myself on a ketogenic diet and be in ketosis. Because really, when you think about what ketosis is, it's an alternative pathway mm-hmm. that our body has to use in times of emergency and times when your when your brain um, in particular when your brain needs energy and for some reason there's not food particularly carbohydrate because that's the fuel your your brain prefers when that's not around and so your your body has this kind of a backup system to make mm-hmm. sure you survive and so it's able to produce these ketone bodies to keep you functioning and so uh, so you're right. It, it's 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 something that historically has alarmed us in terms of we don't necessarily want people to be in ketosis. Mm-hmm. Um, ketone bodies are considered toxic. Um, your body has uh, two two ways of getting rid of them. You you either exhale them through your breath or you urinate them out. And so it is a, a stressful kind of process on your body too because your your body is trying to rid itself of these ketone bodies. Well, when we were getting started, um, Dr. Kozing, you and I both said we yeah. know people who I know have lost, people. Yeah, lost hundreds of pounds. People I know socially or people that I, um, patients of mine, and big weight loss, and they feel great. Well, and so for them, they consider that to be, finger quotes, successful. Yeah. But possibly, we're talking two different languages here, uh, so, ketosis and those ketones and things, that is not some place that you want to be health-wise. So there's got to be a middle ground here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where there's probably where we have a gap in our, say, our research and our scientific understanding of mm-hmm. really what does this mean for somebody long-term. And I think there's some emerging data, but it's fairly short-term data that people can lose weight on a ketogenic or a very low carbohydrate mm-hmm. diet over the course of a few weeks into months. Um, however, like most restrictive diets, uh, what we're, what the literature is saying is that after six months, after a year, these diets are very difficult to sustain, um, mm-hmm. because people miss eating fruits and vegetables and, pastas and breads and other foods that have carbohydrate because most food does. And so it's a very restrictive diet. So it, it is difficult to sustain for any long period of time. Let's have the conversation then about healthy carbs because that's yeah. kind of where some of the confusion comes from. I'm cutting out carbs can mean pasta and bread, yeah. but it also can mean fruits and vegetables. Right. And I think as if you really start looking at what foods have carbohydrates, most do. Mm-hmm. There's the obvious. There's the breads and the pastas. And I think now most people recognize fruits and vegetables. But even our dairy products have carbohydrate and even things like almonds, you know, uh, you know, have some carbohydrates. So I think people saying, well, I'm going to eat almonds on my ketogenic diet or my low carb diet. But depending on the quantity that you eat, 
uh, truly that's going to impact the degree of ketosis that you're in. And then I think another piece of this, too, is that the idea that, again, from a survival standpoint, our body's able to convert protein into carbohydrate, again, because that's what our, our body wants to run off of. And so I think looking at, again, going back to your question of carbohydrates, healthy carbohydrates, when we think about the majority of the foods that Mother Nature has provided for us, probably about 80, 85% of them really do have carbon. So is the answer just to reduce carbohydrate rather than eliminate? Right, and, yeah. I, and I don't even know that we, we have to say it might be look at the quality of your carbohydrate, yeah. Okay. the more wholesome mm-hmm. that carbohydrate is. So maybe a whole no grain need. instead of a bag of Doritos. Yeah, exactly. Okay. There's, there's no, there's probably, and, and portion's always going to matter. Yeah. Um, so kind of it's the, the quality and the quantity of the type of carbohydrate that we you can choose. We can share a bag of Doritos. I would love to share a bag of Doritos <laughs> with you. Is there any long-term data on the keto diet? I haven't. I have not seen real long-term data. I don't know that there's much data beyond uh, the year mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the data that I've seen in regards to uh, weight loss um, in that regard is that people might lose weight that initial six months, but by the year mark, there really isn't a statistical difference in the amount of weight loss compared to maybe other diets. We've been talking about diets with Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zaratsky. And if people are interested in improving what they eat, and you, you always have to be in favor of that at the beginning of the year, trying to turn over a new leaf. Every Monday is a chance to turn over a new leaf, or every day is a chance right. to turn over a new leaf. Let's talk about some other diets instead of keto, and maybe we don't even call them diets. I think that's a that's a great suggestion, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think we've even seen that with our with our dietary guidelines uh, for Americans that comes from the USDA. Um, the last iteration that was released, they started looking at diet patterns or looking at the the patterns, or rather than looking at the way people eat, rather than trying to call it a diet. And I think that's just it. I think because we don't know what the perfect diet is, and if one even exists, but we we do have some evidence that says that there's maybe ways or styles of eating, mm-hmm. um, that there's certain foods that within these patterns that may be beneficial to long-term health, and I think that's the important part of. Do you have a favorite pattern to recommend? Not necessarily. And okay. actually, actually, when I meet with people, I I like to say like, tell me about what you're currently eating mm-hmm. because. As, as you were saying, I think every day is kind of an opportunity to say, how am I going to do it today? Mm-hmm. And if we have just, if, if someone eats a certain way, it's part of their habit, it's part of their lifestyle. And if they're looking to improve that, which I think we all could kind of, you know, hop on that spectrum mm-hmm. somewhere, that we could say, if it's, I you know, want to eat more fruits and vegetables, or if it's more whole grains, or maybe I'd like to, ha- you know, meet the recommendation of having fish twice a week, whatever it might be, I think we can all say there's probably a little wiggle room to improve our, our diet or uh, look at eating yeah. better. Are the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet the same? They're not the same, but they're similar. And okay. I think when you when you start getting into, say, the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet, even the Mayo Clinic diet, and other diets that have kind of been recognized in terms of their long-term health benefits, 
you'll start seeing that there are similarities. Mm-hmm. And I think that just strengthens kind of the cause and the message that these types of foods, the types of foods that you're seeing within this style of eating, that there's probably a good reason to eat this way. So what are some of the types of foods in the Mediterranean diet? Right. And so when I think of the Mediterranean Fish. Yes. I wish I was on the Mediterranean right now. That sounds great. (laughs) Right. And I think a lot of people may think of fish in in olive oil. I think Mm -hmm. those are two that that come to mind right away. So really, if we kind of step back from that, it's, yes, fish in terms of healthy fats, um, olive oil in terms of healthy fats, but... um, also, when you look at the Mediterranean diet and even the Mediterranean lifestyle, that there is many fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. whole grains, nuts, beans, legumes, those types of foods. It's, a, it's whole foods, more whole foods, more plant-based foods. Yeah. What's the DASH diet? And, and say, you know, on, has similar. Can you remind p- us what DASH stands for? Yes. The DASH diet stands for the dietary approaches to stop hypertension. And so similarly, it, I, and I, and maybe a bit of history. So the, the Mediterranean diet coming out of the Mediterranean region, and it was a com- really kind of a look at why are people who live in that region not dying of heart disease and kind of living long, full lives comparatively to say their Western neighbors or their Northern neighbors. And so on the, I would say kind of on the U.S. side, this is almost like our, our kind of reflection or our answer to a Mediterranean type of diet, looking at um, the types of foods you eat. But we took the approach of looking at nutrients. And mm-hmm. so what, what nutrients are we getting from certain food groups that may be beneficial in terms of lowering your blood pressure? And those nutrients are that they specifically looked at were eating less salt, but also in combination with having more calcium, more magnesium, and more potassium. Reflective, the foods that give you those nutrients, calcium coming from dairy foods being most obvious, but calcium can come from other plant foods like leafy greens mm-hmm. or broccoli or um, even almonds. And uh, potassium primarily coming from fruits and vegetables, but coming from other foods as well. And magnesium, uh, nut seeds and cocoa, good, ex- mm-hmm. good sources of those. Great. One of the things, uh, that you get to do when you yeah. sit in, when you fill in for Dr. Shives is you get to ask questions about anything you're yeah, interested well, in. Yeah, well, I had mine on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> Go right so ahead. I'm really interested in veganism. Mm-hmm. And I've been reading a lot about, you know, the blue zones. And so those are the areas mm-hmm. of the world where people live, again, long, full lives beyond just the Mediterranean. So for example, there are parts of Japan where the life expectancy I think is into the late 80s, early 90s, and they found that these people have relatively low stress and tend to eat more of a whole food plant-based diet. So very little, very few animal products on any sort of regular basis. I'm just curious what you think about that. Right, and I think that is a really interesting kind of way to look at, say, nutritional research even, because mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a difficult thing to do. It's, it's difficult to get really good long-term data um, in nutrition. And I think so when we start looking at patterns of ways people eat and then looking at that in combination with their lifestyle and what are their outcomes, um, looking at thing, areas like blue zones, give us some insight into mm-hmm. that. And so I think when you, again, look at the idea that People in these blue zones are maybe eating um, more plant-based diets or incorporating more whole foods. You know, it's kind of real whole foods, even if we go to maybe northern regions of the world where they're eating just more fish as a kind of a part Mm -hmm. of their diet, but maybe not as many plants. You know, we see see those types of things. So 
in terms of vegetarianism or veganism, you know, the idea that you can eat a very nutritious, mm-hmm. well-balanced yeah. diet, you can meet all your nutrient needs with plants for the most part. Except there's, B12. And the, yeah, I say there's those, there's those couple nutrients that yeah. we, we'll pay a, a little closer attention mm-hmm. to, one being B12, um, the other being iron, yeah. um, just because it's a little more difficult to absorb and, and, um, and from plant sources. Mm-hmm. And, and also we'll want to make sure you're getting enough vitamin D yeah. too. Yeah. How has it been? At your house, we did a little vegan experiment at my house, and it was quite gassy. <laughs> but it was, you know, we but felt you good. A lot of we, vegetables. We were already. we were big veggie eaters before, so it wasn't a huge lifestyle shift. But what I, I did it for a couple of reasons. Now I'm not trying to lose weight, but it was to kind of see what it was like because you know I recommend these patterns of eating to people, mm-hmm. and I wanted to see is this a change that I could potentially make, you know, in Minnesota in the middle of winter. (laughs) And um, it was fun. It was actually really kind of stimulating to try some new diets and the gas got better. And we've kind of settled on a low animal product lifestyle. Occasional. Sustainable. Well, you can change your taste buds. I know that's what people think. Uh, There's no way I could ever give up steak. But you can start to change your taste buds and kind of modify that. That is a fact, isn't it? Right. And I'm not I, imagining that. You're, you're, you're not. I think we all, we all have preferences. Right. We do. And, and that's okay. That's what makes us kind of unique individuals and humans. But the, the, what you're describing is the idea that there's a, I was going to say there's a name for that because there's a name yeah. for everything. It's flexitarian diets. Yeah. And so the idea that if you still wanted to have a steak or, mm-hmm. or fish or whatever it might be, you could still do that, but the idea that the base of your diet, the kind of the majority of your diet is plants. Sort of the intentional base mm-hmm. of what you're doing, yeah. Yeah, There's eating eating more plants, I think, sets you up for kind of, kind of the baseline of kind of what your health picture is going to look like. I have no doubt we could keep talking diet questions, but we have to be done. We do, we oh, do. <laughs> We've been talking about diets and healthy lifestyle choices with Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zaratsky. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. Shives will join me as co-host. We'll discuss the safe and effective male birth control, vasectomy. And now with the latest health and medical news, here's Vivian Williams. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Cold sores are caused by the herpes simplex virus. Once you're exposed to the virus, which is typically passed from skin-to-skin contact, it stays in your body for life. After the first infection, the virus will travel to your nerves, where it stays dormant but may awaken periodically. There's no cure, but antiviral medications can help cold sores heal more quickly and may reduce how often they return. Common triggers include stress, illness such as a cold or influenza, exposure to sunlight, wind or other elements, a cut or injury to the skin, changes in the immune system, and hormonal changes. Most cold sores will heal on their own within a couple of weeks. If the discomfort bothers you, a non-prescription pain reliever such as acetaminophen or ibuprofen may help. To reduce the duration of cold sores and relieve symptoms, non-prescription antiviral cream may be worth a try. If a cold sore persists for longer than two weeks or keeps returning, see your primary care provider or a dermatologist who may recommend an antiviral medication pill. 
Now, to keep the virus from spreading, avoid kissing and other skin-to-skin contact with anyone else while you have a cold sore. Keep personal items such as towels and lip balm separate from other people during the time you have that sore, and do not share utensils, cups, or other dishes. To protect your skin and reduce the likelihood of further flare-ups, use a lip balm that contains a broad-spectrum sunscreen. And in other news, winter weather changes can negatively affect the skin, the body's largest organ. Colder temperatures and a lack of moisture in the air can damage unprotected skin, especially on the face and hands. Dr. Don Davis, a Mayo Clinic dermatologist, says when the temperature drops, the humidity tends to drop with it, so naturally your skin dehydrates. Dr. Davis says hands are especially vulnerable to cracks and cuts that can put you at risk for infection, and that the use of winter clothing is very helpful to help slow or delay or prevent evaporation off the skin's surface. If that's not enough, Dr. Davis suggests one of three categories of moisturizers, ointments, which contain oil, creams, which may have oil and water, and lotions, which are generally water-based. If your skin is extremely raw, you may want to start with ointments, but once skin improves, rubbing in a hypoallergenic fragrance-free cream or lotion may provide enough moisture to prevent further problems. And remember, these products only last a few hours at maximum. So Dr. Davis says you really need to hydrate and moisturize at minimum two to three times a day. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A study recently published by the American Cancer Society found that the number of people dying of cancer in the United States has dropped continuously over a 25-year period. The That's latest, awesome. Yeah, the latest data is up to the year 2016. The American Cancer Society believes that the decline in smoking and advances in treatment and early detection are key factors in the continuous drop. Makes sense to me. Yep, it's all good. But cancer remains a big problem in the U.S. The report estimates that this year there will be 1.8 million new cancer cases and more than 600,000 cancer deaths. Here to help us break down those numbers and tell us where we are at in the war against cancer is Chair of Oncology at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Jan Buckner. Welcome to the program, Dr. Buckner. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks, Dr. Buckner, for joining us. So we are, I guess, winning the war, but it's not been easy, has it? Right. I think we are winning, but we're not quite ready to declare victory yet. <laughs> uh, Wasn't it Nixon who uh, who uh, said that our goal was to eradicate cancer by the end of last century? I think it was. The National Cancer Act was in 1973 and was the time that Mayo Clinic established its uh, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center. Talk about some of the reasons why we are winning the war. Cancer deaths. Yeah. Cancer deaths, yes. Well, I, I totally agree with uh, the American Cancer Society. One of the main reasons is that uh, through public awareness, there has been gradual increase in smoking-related cancers uh, since um, shortly after World War II, uh, when it became there were folks that were starting to understand that uh, tobacco really is a carcinogen. And lots of public uh, campaigns that have um, made the public aware of the dangers of smoking. And that's uh, that's the main cause. Um, the other thing that has helped is uh, better treatments. And it seems like there are certain cancers that were a lot better uh, at treating, but certain cancers still defy all of our best efforts. 
Yes, uh, there has been in many, many cancers increasing five-year survivors through better treatment, uh, notably breast cancer, colon cancer, and more recently, lung cancer. With the advent of immunotherapy uh, and with personalized medicine so that we can identify the uh, the genetic alterations in the tumor and treat specifically, we are seeing longer survival, even in people with advanced stage cancer. Uh, Mayo Clinic is very involved with uh, testing new therapies, um, both immunotherapy and personalized therapy through clinical trials. And almost every week or every other week, there is a new um, treatment breakthrough for people with cancer. You know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, there was, uh, people didn't even want to say the C word. It was such taboo, even when it comes to today and screening is so much. A lot more people go in for screening than ever before. That has to be making a big difference as well. Well, it does. Now their uh, screening recommendations uh, for breast cancer, cervix cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, uh, in fact, uh, on the colon cancer side, Mayo Clinic has really led the way in developing non-invasive uh, screening tests by the use of a, a test called Cologuard, uh, which uh, is, uh, just requires a stool sample. It doesn't require a prep. It doesn't require colonoscopy. And we are seeing people being screened for the first time uh, because it does not necessarily require colonoscopy. So back in the 60s and 70s, was there any screening at all? I look at both of you to answer that question With for sigmoidoscopy, me. we had. In yeah. fact, we did them on each other in mm-hmm. medical school. But it's a long silver tube that only examined the lower part of the colon. And and that's what we were was being used back in the 70s and 60s 80s, and as 70s. I recall. Mm-hmm. But well, there were a couple of others. Uh, pap smears have been around uh, for a long time for cervix cancer. Mm-hmm. And also uh, a testing stool for blood has mm-hmm. been around for a long time as a screening method. Uh, mammography has been around for a long time for screening for breast cancer. Uh, but... Um, not everyone uh, has their cancer detected on some of those uh, screening techniques. So one of the areas that uh, we're interested in here uh, at Mayo Clinic is molecular breast imaging uh, and looking at the stiffness of the breast tissue. Because cancers tend to be very stiff, it's possible with a technique called elastography, uh, to actually determine if there is an area within the breast that is more stiff and more likely to be breast cancer. Tell us a little bit more about immunotherapy. We all sort of know what chemotherapy is. It's poison. Uh, it poisons not only the tumor, but uh, unfortunately it has some adverse side effects. Immunotherapy. Explain to our audience what that is. Immunotherapy is pretty straightforward. The goal is to teach the body's own immune system to recognize a cancer that previously it did not recognize. In some ways, it essentially takes the brakes off the immune system so it can be much more aggressive at uh, seeking out and eliminating cancers. Unfortunately, cancer is linked to obesity. That is on the rise. Obesity is on the rise, and there are Several obesity-related cancers, uh, uh, the common ones, breast cancer, colon cancer, 
prostate cancer, and others are all associated uh, with obesity. There are some efforts going forward to find out why is obesity associated with cancer and what could we do uh, specifically for obese patients to to reduce their risk. And what are the socioeconomic factors that affect cancer rates? Unfortunately, uh, folks uh, with, with low income have a higher rate of cancer and are diagnosed uh, when the cancer is more advanced. So we really do need to address this disparity. Part of it is likely related to access to screening and prevention uh, and related to uh, reduced access to treatment. And there are so also uh, other factors such as uh, smoking rates that are, tend to be higher and obesity tends to be a bit higher in low-income uh, patients and families. So we're obviously doing better. Is there any reason to think that there will be a major advance in the treatment of cancer in the near future? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, almost every week or every other week, we are getting a notification from the FDA that a new drug has been approved uh, for the treatment of one cancer or another. So we have every reason to be optimistic. All right. To you and your colleagues, keep up the great work. Thank you. It's a difficult disease, but it sounds like we're winning the war. We've been talking about recent news on the declining number of cancer deaths in the United States with the chair of Mayo Clinic's oncology department, Dr. Jan Buckner. Dr. Buckner, I appreciate you being here. Thank you. For men who are finished having children, a vasectomy is a quick and safe way to prevent future pregnancies. Quick, safe, painless? Painless? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Probably pretty quick and safe, but it's not something most guys are actually looking forward to. And when it comes time to schedule the procedure, March is the most popular time of year. And why could that be, I wonder? Recovery from a vasectomy requires some downtime and rest. And what better time of year to be off work and home on the couch than during the NCAA basketball tournament known as March Madness? It's for real. (laughs) Here to discuss this phenomenon is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Tobias Kohler. Welcome back to the program. It's nice to see you again, Dr. Kohler. Great to be seen. Hello again. (laughs) Is this a real thing? Yeah, no, it's actually true. There's a big mad rush uh, during March Madness, and people actually call the schedule knowing that these times will book up in advance sooner than they typically do. Hmm. So how long is a guy usually down following this procedure? <laughs> you know, honestly, uh, a day or two, uh, if that. Uh, it's pretty straightforward these days. The procedure takes 15 minutes total. You go home, and then you watch some TV. You know, don't do any chores for a few days. You know, sometimes I tell the, the spouse maybe three to six months, uh, no, no, you know, tough <laughs> labor, et cetera. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I can remember when I had mine done. And uh, Kula's grandmother, my mm-hmm. spouse's grandmother, called, and Ariana answered the phone. And my grandmother, her grandmother, happened to say, um, "What's your dad doing?" <laughs> and she said, "Not much. He's laying on the couch with an ice pack on his testicles." <laughs> That's what your daughter <laughs> said. My daughter, she was six years old. <laughs> And she was right, but it wasn't bad. The recovery wasn't bad. Hey, and I think that any spouse is happy to do this so that uh, that she does not have to have the surgery because it's a lot harder for a woman to recover than for a guy to recover, correct? That is true, and there is still a risk of serious complications with female sterilization. 
but uh, it's never a death has never been reported in the United States anyway with vasectomy. There was one case maybe in Yugoslavia on somebody's garage, etc. But uh, yeah, it's a very safe procedure. So how is it done? How do you do a vasectomy? Well, if you come to visit us and get it done, we'll give you a little uh, uh, medication to drink to kind of take the edge off. Uh, so conversations are typically humorous. You are awake during the procedure, and we put some numbing medicine in. That hurts a little bit, but not too bad. And we actually have specialized instruments uh, where we actually grab the vas deferens, the tiny little tube that actually carries the sperm from the testicle to where it gets connected. Uh, we deliver that out of the skin, and then we cut the vas deferens, we clip it, we burn it, we bury it. <laughs> we do very, we do a lot of stuff to it to make sure that sperm can't cross that bridge uh, that we now severed. Thinking you need to change the way you're describing this a little bit. You need to instead of we grab it, we gently grasp. Oh yeah, it. we lovingly embrace the the vast deference. <laughs> yeah, exactly we, yeah. as it should be. Exactly. Um, and the recovery you said is just a couple of days normally. Yeah, so you're not going to want to do any electric bull riding or skydiving or jackhammering in the the days following the procedure. But other than that, stuff around the house, etc., is reasonable. It is true for the first 24 hours you should apply ice to the area. Uh, let us know if you're having any significant swelling, which is a rare uh, complication. And, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Are there any other risks? Well, uh, the main risk to any procedure for causing you know, sterility is that it doesn't work. So <laughs> That's a very big risk. It is a big I'm risk. I'm glad that's the first one so, you mentioned. Yes. So post-procedurally, we have the men have to give a semen sample. And once they have one semen analysis that shows... No moving sperm anymore. Boom, you're done. No more testing. You're good to go. The majority of failures are in men who don't get the post-procedure semen analysis. In like one in 1,000 to one in 2,000 cases, you can have it where the tubes actually grow back together. Remarkably, the day after the surgery, both ends of the vas send out these little tendrils to find their long-lost soulmates. And they'll try to reconnect. Wow. So that's what we do with other stuff to prevent it. You burn them. You tie them. We, we clip them. Yeah. We <laughs> yell at them. Uh, in addition, occasionally, uh, you know, there's surgical error where you maybe you grab the same side twice. You know, that kind of thing. So that's also very, very rare. But vasectomist surgeons aren't perfect. And so you have to get the post-procedural check to make sure that you get the green light. Uh, when you do look at statistics at how many men actually get this testing done, it's somewhere around the 50% range. So it's absurd. Really? Yeah. And, and how, long a- a- how long after the procedure should you have that done? Uh, typically, it's about the six-week to three-month three mark, depending on who you ask. There's a study in Britain that says you have to ejaculate at least 25 times before you should get the, uh, the testing done. But typically, if you get a test at the two-month mark, the vast majority of men are going to be cleared at that point. But in that six-week period, you either have to abstain or there's a potential for your wife to get pregnant? That is absolutely correct. So there are bullets in the chamber which need to be emptied, yeah. right? So okay. we only cut the vast deference close to the testicle. There are sperm happy, willing uh, to fertilize an egg that can get placed there because they're beyond the point where we do our work. I know that for, um, all kidding aside, I know that for a lot of men, many men, this is something that they just cannot bring themselves to do. What is the reason why men don't want to do this? It's just not an area where you want anybody working on. People get cold feet, just right. like with any other procedure. I mean, it just has to do with being a sensitive area. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that's that's the bottom line. And 
guy's friends, quotation fingers, uh, <laughs> will say, you know, oh, I had such a horrible experience. They'll, sure. they'll exaggerate the misery right. Right. when, in fact, the vast majority of men don't have any issues and they're back to doing normal things within a few days. Are there other options for birth control for men? Well, uh, for birth control for men, other than the standard barrier methods or abstinence, which isn't that fun, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are investigational techniques out there which haven't been FDA approved yet. For many, many years, people have been trying to you know, manipulate guys' hormones to modulate testosterone levels to make it so that men are sterile, but that's not 100% successful. It's pretty close, but not close enough, and so uh, it's not as good as the surgical treatments. There's other new experimental treatments where, you know, apparently you're going to be able to switch your vast deference on and off, uh, the, a little little device in there so you can be sterile or not sterile. Uh, that is yet to be FDA approved. Uh, there is an injectable gel, which people are working on to inject in there so that you could reverse that potentially. Uh, the one downside to the vasectomy is that if you do want it reversed, which 6% of men in their lifetime will ask to do based on various reasons, uh, remarried, uh, tragic loss of a child, uh, just changing your mind, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can reverse it. As a matter of fact, here in our clinic, uh, my partner, Dr. Landon Trost, does the reversals all in the office as well. Wow. So whereas the vasectomy takes 10 minutes aside or so, the reversal can take a few hours. But actually, this is the only place in the world where we do the vasectomy reversal and vasectomy, the complex ones, in the clinic. And what's the success rate of the reverse, reversing it? It's exceedingly high, in the high 90s, uh, and it has a little bit to do with how long you waited. Uh, if it's been 20 years since your procedure, the rates go down. Okay. But if you do it within the first couple of years, it's you know, very, very high, 96, 97, 98%. A couple of interesting facts, though. Uh, if you're done having children and you want don't want your wife to get pregnant again, uh, the condoms are only 85% effective. And There's the always a chance. March Madness, time for a vasectomy. I with guess so. A, I'm talking with urologist Dr. Tobias Kohler of the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Kohler. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.